There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. One of the things that I've enjoyed about going back to the beginning with the Twilight Zone is seeing some of the things that would become kind of regular occurrences or themes happening for the first time. I think in the instance of this episode, despite the Twilight Zone being often considered to be a science fiction show, the episode we'll be discussing tonight, The Lonely, is really our first out-and-out sci-fi episode. It's the first time the show went into space and our first look at an alien world and the first time we see a robot. I also like to see the show returning to certain themes as well and seeing it tackle them in different ways. This time round we're back to the theme of loneliness like in the first episode Where Is Everybody? In both instances we see someone who's exposed to extreme loneliness. You know, although although the setting in, in both instances couldn't be more different in one it's a guy in solitary confinement in a really small space in this a guy's in solitary confinement on a whole asteroid he's got you know thousands of miles to himself you can see how crushing loneliness can be now normally we'd cut straight to the rod sailing opening narration we'll get to that in a moment but I'd like to read to you the original opening narration as it was written now I personally think that rod sailing made the right decision to change it as it was originally written I think it was a little clunky and it did need streamlining a little bit and also the revised version has a little bit more of a poetic quality to it paying particular attention to Sailing's description of the dungeon anyway here's that original piece of narration as, as originally written The residence of Mr James W Corrie a shack, a shed and an old sedan with a front yard made up of sand and scrub that stretches to infinity. There is a ritual even to loneliness, for twice a day Corrie will leave his shack, go over to look at the car, touch it, sit in its front seat, stare out of its windshield and perhaps succumb to a wishful daydream that he was at the wheel and the car was on a highway and there was some place to go. This would have been just a wish, because where this man is there are no highways, and there are no places to go, no people to see, no spots to visit. Mr. Corrie is alone. For the record, let it be known that James W. Corrie is a convicted criminal placed in solitary confinement. And it matters little that this confinement in this case stretches as far as the eye can see. This is a prison, without people, without their talk and laughter, without sound save the wind. It is an exile far worse than a dungeon at the far end of the earth because Mr. Corey has been banished to a place beyond the earth. Witness, if you will, a dungeon made out of mountains, salt flats and sand that stretch to infinity. The dungeon has an inmate. James A. Corey, and this is his residence. Metal shack. An old touring car that squats in the sun and goes nowhere, for there is nowhere to go. For the record, let it be known that James A. Corey is a convicted criminal 
placed in solitary confinement. Confinement in this case stretches as far as the eye can see because this particular dungeon is on an asteroid nine million miles from the Earth. Now witness, if you will, a man's mind and body shriveling in the sun. A man dying of loneliness. Written by Rod Serling and directed by Jack Smythe, first broadcast on the 13th of November, 1959. Now we meet James Corey, who's generally referred to throughout the episode as Corey, and it's been said he's a prisoner on an asteroid nine million miles from Earth. He lives in a small metal hut and is quite literally the only person there, apart from the men who bring him supplies every three months. Now before we get into the meat of the story, I think we need to mention the location. The exterior shots were filmed in Death Valley, California, and uh, and the director, Jack Smythe, had this to say. He said, that was unbelievable heat when we shot out there. The temperature was around 130 degrees, One day the caterer very foolishly served a very heavy meal for lunch and about eight crew members just dropped off in the afternoon. George Clemens actually fell off the camera crane right into the sand. I thought he was having a heart attack because because he was up on the crane. We were setting up a shot and he just toppled off. Now the producer Buck Houghton recalls, We had a nurse with us and she kept pushing lukewarm water and once in a while a guy would say, well don't worry about me and put down a quart of nice cold chocolate milk. In about half an hour he'd turn green and have to lie down in the truck. And another little story he tells, he said, one time Gene Marsh, who played Alicia in the episode, lay down in the shot that's the tag of the picture. We put a thermometer down beside her and it was 140 degrees where she was lying. So not the best conditions to be shooting in. And Rod Sailing said, Death Valley was 116 degrees with a ground temperature of 139. We lost seven people off the crew, including the cameraman, the sailman, and the script girl by six o'clock the first night from heat prostration. I thought New Guinea was hot, but it was like Fairbanks compared to what we had to put up with there. But we got some beautiful pictures there. And they did get some beautiful pictures there, but in the end the, the heat just turned out to be too much and after a couple of days of filming they made the decision to do all of the interior shots in a studio much to everyone's relief, I think. Now, in this episode, they make the decision to have narration by Corey. Now, some would say, does the episode actually need it? Because sometimes I find narration is quite a a tool of lazy writing, but I guess if there's one thing Sailing wasn't, it was a lazy writer. Some of the things we find out in the narration, I think we possibly could have surmised for ourselves. But I think it does add some depth to things as well. Purely for the fact that this is supposed to be Corey's journal that we're hearing. These are his innermost thoughts. I mean, if you take the car outside as an example, I guess they could have explained how it got there with a few words between Corey and one of the crewmen who turn up to bring him supplies. But I don't think you could have really gotten across how much it meant to Corey, how it had kept him sane for a year. And in some ways you could say that it's establishing a relationship between Corey and the machine. Now in the book, Rod Sailing and the Twilight Zone, the writer Douglas Broad says, by suggesting how intensely a forgotten man can relate to a machine, Sailing perfectly sets up everything that will follow. Entry, 
fifteenth day, six month, the year four. And all the days and the months and the years the same. There'll be a supply ship coming in soon, I think. They're either due or overdue. And I hope it's Allenby's ship because he's a decent man. He brings things for me. Like he brought in the parts of that antique automobile. How's a year putting that thing together, such as it is? Whole year putting an old car together. But thank God for that car and for the hours I used up, the days and the weeks. I can look at it out there and I know that it's real. Reality is what I need. Because what is there left that I can believe in? The desert and the wind, the silence, or myself? Can I believe in myself anymore? Now shortly the man that he spoke about, Captain Allenby, arrived with a couple of crew members and Corey is understandably like a kid at Christmas, you know, he's getting his playing cards out and his chest set, he just can't wait to have some company. But when he goes to meet the rocket crew, not all of them are as sympathetic as Allenby. Allenby! How are you, Corey? Alright. You? What a place you've got here, Corey. Glad you like it. I didn't say I liked it, I think it stinks. Well, you don't have to live here. No, but I have to come back here four times a year. That's eight months out of 12, Corey, away from Earth. Sometimes my kids don't even recognize me when I come home. But you, you've got it made here, haven't you, Corey? Yeah, this makes for simple living, doesn't it? 6,000 miles from north to south, 4,000 from east to west, and all of it just like this. All right, Adams, cut it out. Allenby hasn't got much time. But there is just enough time for one of the crew to explain a little more about his case. Corey is actually serving a 50-year sentence for homicide, but he is holding out for a pardon. But the crewman takes the greatest pleasure in rubbing it in that not only hasn't he got the pardon on this occasion, but they're not reviewing homicide cases at the moment, and Corey has got 46 more years to go. I think we need to talk about the whole premise of using a remote asteroid as a solitary confinement. I think it's the only questionable thing about the episode. And what I mean by that, I I just can't see under what circumstances this would be a viable form of imprisonment for a planet to to do this, you know, if a if a person was imprisoned on Earth, you'd have the cost of keeping them alive. But keeping them on an asteroid 9 million miles from Earth, you'd have the cost of fuel and manpower to have men flying around the universe giving them supplies. I guess if the point was just to get these people off the planet, then why didn't they just build a prison on the moon or something? You know, the moon is only 250,000 miles away from Earth. You know, I guess there's no atmosphere on the moon, but if humankind is advanced enough to build a spaceship that can travel 9 million miles then surely they could create some sort of installation with its own atmosphere a dome or something I don't know but you know we could hypothesize about this all day to be honest it's not really a big deal to me I think you know with the advent of the internet people sometimes seem to overanalyze things when perhaps they should just relax and enjoy something if it generally hangs together okay and I think in this case it really is a minor thing it's just something that I do you know think well hold on a minute but in the scheme of things it doesn't get in the way of what is a great story Hallaby, every morning when I get up I tell myself this is my last day of sanity I can't stand this loneliness one more day not one more day 
By noon, when I can't keep my fingers still and the inside of my mouth feels like gunpowder and burnt copper. Down deep inside my gut, I get an ache that's just pulling everything out. Then I force myself to hold on for one more day. Just one more day. But I can't do that for another 46 years, Alan. I'll go right out of my mind. So Allenby tells his crewman to go and get a big crate that he's left at the ship to to bring to Corey. And Allenby and Corey get to talk, and, and then we learn that Corey claims that the crime that he's imprisoned for wasn't actually cobbled and murder, but it was a case of self-defense. And a lot of people believe that, and we even find out that Allenby believes that too. When Rod Serling wrote the novelization for this, he actually changed the crime from self-defense to Corey having witnessed his wife killed by a speeding car. The car crashed. Corey pulled the driver out and strangled him to death. I'm not quite sure why he made that change. In the show, all we hear is it was self-defense. I guess maybe that seemed a little insubstantial on the page, so Sailing wanted to create something a little more dramatic. I don't know, but, but that's something to chew over anyway. Now, Allenby was played by John Denner again, as we've seen a lot of times with The Twilight Zone. He's just a very busy working actor at the time. And I think a lot of his credits would probably mean more to listeners in the US than they do to me. A lot of TV westerns and so on. But there are some genre credits there too, like he was in Kolchak the Night Stalker and Land of the Giants. Just a couple of sci-fi shows that I'm aware of. But I like his performance as Allenby. It's quite a low-key performance, not particularly flashy. But it's what it needs to be. You can really see the sympathy he has for Corey. And it looks like he's carrying the weight of that sorrow on his shoulders, you know. And then there's moments when he comes into Corey's shack and he just casually empties his pockets of what I assume are maybe chocolate bars or cigarettes. I don't know. But, you know, I could almost imagine that these aren't necessarily the supplies that Allenby has been issued to give him he's just picked these things up himself to to try and make Corey's time there more comfortable there's a lot of little clips here that it's tempting to use but i'd end up putting half the episode into the podcast but i do like the relationship between these two men Corey's just a ball of frustration and but as allenby says it's not easy for him to have to come and see Corey suffering like this either so there's this relationship that's kind of born from this unfortunate situation a mutual respect and appreciation on Corey's part and I guess a certain amount of pity and frustration and maybe admiration too on Allenby's part. Allenby? I don't much care what's in it, but for the thought, for the decency, thank you. Quite welcome, Corey. So he opens the box and discovers that inside is a robot, which is a perfect recreation of a human woman in the way she looks anyway. But he immediately rejects her, and the words he uses are another great example of sailing dialogue delivered by a great actor. You are now the proud possessor of a robot built in the form of a woman. To all intent and purpose, this creature is a woman. Physiologically and psychologically, she is a human being with a set of emotions and a memory track. The ability to reason, to think, and to speak 
She is beyond illness and under normal circumstances should have a lifespan similar to that of a normal human being. Her name is Alicia. My name's Alicia. What's your name? Get out of here. Get out of here. I don't need a machine. Go on, get out of here. My name's Alicia. What's your name? eventually he blows up at Alicia he's like you know what can you feel and he's unloading on her with this tirade and eventually he pushes her to the floor but after he finishes this rant he sees that she's actually crying now and this finally convinces him that maybe she does feel after all you mock me you know that when you look at me when you talk to me I'm being mocked I'm sorry you hurt me Kari hurt you? How can I hurt you? This isn't real flesh. There aren't any nerves under there. There aren't any muscles or tendons. You're just like this heap. A hook of metal with arms and legs instead of wheels. But this heap doesn't mock me the way you do. It doesn't look at me with make-believe eyes or talk to me with a make-believe voice. Well, I'm sick of being mocked by the memory of women. And that's all you are. A reminder to me that I'm so lonely, I'm about to lose my mind. I can feel loneliness too. Oh, Alicia, I'm sorry. In effect, Corey's created what some might consider to be the perfect woman. You know, she likes what he likes because He's all she's ever known. He knows this. He admits that he's actually fallen in love with an extension of himself. Alicia's been with me now for 11 months. It's difficult to write down what has been the sum total of this very strange and bizarre relationship. Is it man and woman? Or man and machine? I don't really know myself. But there are times when I do know that Alicia is simply an extension of me. I hear my words coming from her my emotions. The things that she has learned to love are those things that I've loved. I'm not lonely anymore. Each day can now be lived with. I love Alicia. Nothing else matters. Now Alicia was played by Jean Marsh. She's a British actress who worked in America for a time and had a pretty successful career there. She appeared in TV shows like The Waltons and Hawaii Five-O and in films like The Changeling with George C. Scott and the Ron Howard movie Willow. Now she did move back to the UK eventually and she's thankfully still with us, alive and well and still actually working. She's been in quite a few episodes of Doctor Who in the past and she also created the television series Upstairs Downstairs that was actually either remade or continued, I'm not quite sure which, for Christmas on the BBC in 2010. And Jean Marsh actually played a part in it too. Now I think she does just fine in this episode of The Twilight Zone. I mean, she's a robot, I guess there's not a huge amount to do. Occasionally a kind of robotic monotone voice isn't quite there, you know. 
But then there's that scene where she's playing chess with Corey and she does this big beautiful smile that lights up her face and at that point you can see how you know such a lonely man could actually end up falling for her. But happy as Corey and Alicia are, eventually Allenby comes back earlier than he should have done because he's got some news for Corey. Corey's been granted a pardon and it would seem that they've actually outlawed this kind of solitary confinement on Earth too. That car they can keep. That'll be for the next poor devil. Ah, uh, there won't be any next poor devil. Good. Good, I'm glad of that. Alicia and I are climbing to that ship of yours and we'll... We'll look out the port and we'll give it all a big kiss goodbye. Hello, Corey? Oh, my dear God, I forgot her. He's out of his mind. Who's Alicia? I think this is one of the things to pause for thought about. What value can we place on the life of a robot? We see that she can feel straight out of the box. She cried at being hurt, but was that just a programmed reaction? And because she's programmed to feel, does that mean she can't feel? I don't think the show really delves into that in any great depth, but it does put enough out there, I think, for the audience to kind of stop and think about that for a moment so they're trying to get Corey to leave but he won't go without Alicia and there's just not enough room on the ship for her so Allenby does the only thing he can he shoots Alicia 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 show them talk to them show them talk to them Alicia show them Alicia show them I don't have any choice Corey I have no choice at all. Corey? No! No! Corey. 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 So there she is on the floor with her face having been destroyed by the bullet in what I think is quite a genuinely effective and a little bit creepy scene, especially the way her voice just dies away that way. And it was actually a bit of a worry for CBS at the time. Frank Morris from CBS gave Sailing the following notes. He said, practically speaking, Alicia the robot is a human being. And for the purpose of enjoying the play, the viewer will go along with the fiction that she is not. However, it verges upon horror to have the camera show us fragments of his shattered face. Would you confine these odd bits of physiognomy to strictly mechanical props, wires, levers, gears, springs, etc., unrecognisable as eyes, ears, or portions of the human anatomy? Now, you did find with Rod Sailing a lot of the time he would get notes that he would just ignore. Apparently, he... He didn't particularly like his words to be changed in any way. And, you know, things like in this episode, the use of the word God, he, he got notes about that too, and he ended up just leaving it in. And there's a lot of examples about, of this through the episodes that we've actually discussed already. So, But I guess in this case, we don't quite know whether this was how they were going to go anyway, because, you know, you don't see, like, an eyeball lying on the floor or anything like that. It is just the shell of her face with the wires and so on inside because it I guess it would have been quite a horrific scene had they decided to go that way you know today we might not think about that twice but back then I guess for television it would have been you know quite a strong scene to put there 
So this immediately kind of snaps Corey out of his protestations to Allenby. He doesn't cry or anything. He's obviously shell-shocked, but the stark reality of seeing Alicia like this just wakes him up. We've got to go now, Captain. We will go now. Come on, Corey. Time to go home. It's all behind you now, Corey. It's all behind you. It's like a bad dream, a nightmare. When you wake up, you'll be back on Earth. You'll be home. That's right. All you're leaving behind is loneliness. I must remember that. I must remember to keep that in mind. It's at this point that I'm reminded of what Allenby said earlier on when he's climbing back into the rocket ship. One of the crewmen asks him what was in the box and he doesn't explicitly say, but he says this kind of little cryptic thing which doesn't make much sense at that point, but when you put it into context with Alicia's, and in quotations, death, and Corey's reaction to it, the way he snaps out of it, as if he's been under some sort of spell that is broken, his comment kind of starts to make sense. Yeah. What's, uh, what's in the big crate, huh? Not quite sure, really. Maybe it's just an illusion. Maybe it's salvation. Let's go. You know, I have to say, I, I really adore this episode. Starting with the location, it's just epic. You know, it's funny. It's funny. It kind of really shows the differences between England and America. In, in the British science fiction show Doctor Who, if they wanted to show an alien planet, they'd go to like a slate quarry or something, which are fairly big, I suppose, but not really. But here you have a location where you can stand there and see nothing in every direction, and it's absolutely perfect. You couldn't do something like that in England. We just don't have the room, I guess. But that's why I like the way, the kind of poetic way that Rod Serling describes it as a dungeon, because it is, but it's like no dungeon we've ever seen before. There are miles of land that could go on and on, but where's he going to go to? You know, there's nowhere, there's nowhere to go. And even if he tried, the desert would kill him soon enough anyway. So he's there, he's trapped. And despite that minor thing I said earlier about why would a civilization imprison someone in an asteroid nine million miles away from Earth? In terms of creating a basis for a show, I think it, it's genius. So we've talked about our other two main players, and I haven't talked about Jack Ward yet, the gentleman who played Corey. I think everyone must know Jack Ward, you know, everyone of a certain age anyway. Now, they may not know him by name, but I think they'll certainly know his face. He was just shy of 40 when he made this, but even at this young age he still has a very kind of mature face he's the kind of actor you wonder whether he was ever really young but i think it's such a strong performance you know you see the whole spectrum of emotion here and you know especially the frustration i think he nails every line and i think so far i think this is possibly my favorite performance of the show but it's definitely my favorite episode so far now this is another Bernard Herrmann scored episode and it's quite an understated score I think, quite 
I guess quite eerie in its own way, perfectly fitting for Corey's solitude. Not necessarily a score that I would listen to on its own like I would with Walking Distance, but it fits, it fits. Now at this stage in the Twilight Zone, people were starting to sit up and take notice. It was starting to really get some critical acclaim. In the Variety Review, they said, in your wildest flight of imagination, you'll never quite catch up with what worms out of Rod Serling's typewriter. Your nightmares even pale by comparison. Yet, they are so well done from script through to enactment that the Twilight Zone is becoming a Friday night habit in millions of homes. Strange and eerie in its concept, it gets added impact from the disarming comments of Serling and has the power to grip. Warden kept his emotions in check to avoid the temptation of going berserk, which also redounds to the credit of director Jack Smite. John Denner and Miss Marsh were competent abettors, and distinguishing marks were left by Bernard Herrmann scoring and the sets designed by George W. Davis and William Ferrari. But I guess one of the best compliments were by Sailing himself, where he said in 1975, I've been blessed frequently by having good actors. You get certain guys like Klugman, Jack Klugman, or Jack Ward, solid, dependable, consummately skilled men who invariably take lines and breathe great life into them and great vibrance and great truth. Now, I'm going to close out my thoughts on this episode with a quote from the book Rod Sailing in the Twilight Zone, the 50th anniversary tribute. It's written by Douglas Brode and Carol Sailing, Rod's widow. It's not a book of facts and figures and so on. It's a, it's more of an episode by episode kind of, more of a philosophical look at each episode. And, you know, sometimes it's quite straightforward, but other times it can, it can be quite illuminating. And his last words on this episode, I think, bear reading. And it says, Sailing then reminds us what, on a deeper level, the lonely was all about. Made in his image, kept alive by love, that was Alicia, whose ruined frame was left behind like the antique car that once held meaning for the loneliest of men. As in so many zones involving a looking glass, Rod insists that we ought not confuse the companionship of other people with the act of embracing a mirror image of oneself. To love a person makes one more human, the other nothing but self-destructive self-worship. On a microscopic piece of sand that floats through space is a fragment of a man's life. Left to rust is the place he lived in and the machines he used. Without use, they will disintegrate from the wind and the sand and the years that act upon them. All of Mr. Corey's machines, including the one made in his image, kept alive by love. But now, obsolete in the twilight zone. You know, after I put together an episode of the Twilight Zone podcast and put it out there, I, you know, I often think, you know, I should have said this, I should have said that, or I, I think of some kind of slant on things that, you know, seems so obvious when you think about it, but I missed it. Which is why I'd just like to remind you that the thetwilightzonepodcast.com is there if you want to comment on any of the shows, and, and you can also email me at feedback at thetwilightzonepodcast.com. Our good friend of the show, Ben, recently did that. He left a comment on the 
on the site about the last episode, The Escape Clause, and he said, The thing that comes to mind regarding this episode is the depiction of the lead character. It seems a common factor of many of Rod Serling's scripts to contain a married couple where one partner is good-hearted and selfless and the other is a tyrannical bully. Another example of this is the upcoming Time Enough at Last. Does anyone know where this trope comes from? As from what I understand, Rod Serling had a very good relationship with his wife Carol. Could it be purely for dramatic effect? Or is there something deeper there? So if you want to get into that discussion or start your own discussion on anything else in the comments sections, come and visit us at thetwilightzonepodcast.com. And of course, if you want to learn a little more about one of Rod Sailing's later shows, you can check out the Night Gallery podcast hosted by Chris Brown. I know we always speak about Rod Sailing with a lot of reverence, and Chris does too, but you know, even the best writers create the odd dud and... And in an episode of the Night Gallery podcast that I found a little bit amusing, Chris talks about one of those episodes. It's it's a story in Night Gallery called Nature of the Enemy. It's not Rod Serling's finest hour, unfortunately, but it was kind of fun hearing Chris talk about it, so I'd recommend going over there and checking that one out. I also have a couple of thank yous to make, both stateside. I have another couple of iTunes reviews, one from... Professor Ellis Fowler and another from Eshe, Eshe, I'm sorry if I messed up the pronunciation on that. So my thanks to you, I'm, I'm humbled by both your kind words and they're much appreciated and like I say, it's these reviews really help get the podcast noticed, so thank you. Now in the next podcast we're going to be talking about an episode of The Twilight Zone that's one of the ones that always comes up when people talk about their favourite episodes of The Twilight Zone and... And I think it also kind of goes beyond the hardcore Twilight Zone fans too. It gets referenced a lot of times, you know, in other things like The Simpsons and so on. And it is, of course, Time Enough at Last starring Burgess Meredith. So I think this is going to be an interesting one. So I hope you'll join me next time on the Twilight Zone podcast. (laughs) Bye-bye.